Welcome to the second episode of Transcasting, your source for transgender news and discussion. Our podcast is now available on most major podcast platforms, and you should look forward to new episodes releasing every Monday at 3 a.m. PST. If you are new, we encourage you to watch the first couple of minutes of our first episode if you'd like some background on your hosts. With the intro out of the way today, it's January 19th, 2024, and I'm your host Miranda with Bridget and Kai, and you're listening to Transcasting. Hey everyone, this is Kai. So our first article comes from NBC. So the Supreme Court on Tuesday, Tuesday, they decided not to weigh in on the issue of bathroom access for trans students by rejecting an Indiana school district's appeal. So the court left in place uh, an appeals court ruling that required a middle school in Martinsville, Indiana, to allow a transgender boy to use the bathroom that corresponds with his gender identity. The Metropolitan School District of Martinsville had wanted the justices to conclude that it is not required to allow trans students to use the bathrooms of their choosing. At issue was whether the Constitution's 14th Amendment, which says that the laws apply equally to everyone, or Title IX, the federal law that prohibits sex discrimination in education, protects this student within this context. The court's decision not to intervene means that the courts, the, these lower courts nationwide will be able to continue and reach whatever conclusions they come to. Um, and it's likely that the Supreme Court may weigh in on this issue at some point. Um, and that's kind of, that's the article. So let's open it up and see what people got to say. Yeah, so I... I'm always wary of Supreme Court stories because um, people like to try to read the tea leaves and figure out, you know, the way the interpretation of the law is going based on the court, the cases that the Supreme Court takes and what they don't take. But it's so hard to like make those predictions. You can never really tell what the Supreme Court is thinking. I mean, it's possible that they didn't take this up because, you know, they thought the lower court's ruling was was appropriate or maybe they didn't take it up because you know some some of the more activist just justices on the court they want to change the law but they don't think this is the right case for that you can never tell um so it's good to keep an eye on these things but until something's actually before the supreme court and they issue their rulings we really don't know what what it all means yeah that was sort of like one of my questions when I read it was like, you know, like, why did they not, you know, like what, what's their angle? Like, do they have an angle? Um, right. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. They'll never tell. <laughs> They're tight lipped, the Supreme Court justices. Yeah. I mean, staying out of it, I feel like, right. It leaves discrimination unchecked. Right. Um, so I feel like whether, a message is clear whether it was said or not right by not by recusing themselves i feel like that sends a message in some way even if you know you want to say well technically they didn't respond on it it could be a, bit, a bunch of different reasons i still think um i still think it sends a very clear message that it, this is not a priority yeah but also for this particular case um mm -hmm. as the kind of uh, said there's still some more wrangling that could happen in the lower courts. So it's not like the Supreme Court has uh, decided not to take this up forever. 
there will probably be future appeals and they might choose at a future time to take up this exact same case. You never know. What? You never know. In this case in particular, the the appeal passed through the lower court and the state wanted the Supreme Court to override the this appeal because they wanted to restrict the bathroom policies, you know. So um, in this way, the Supreme Court, by not doing anything, um, improved the transgender bathroom situation. Um, oh, yeah. For this current, uh, I, okay, yeah. So, yeah, at least they didn't make it worse. Yeah. Wait. Yeah. All right. Uh, shall we go on to further news? So, um, I'd like to report that two big trans rights organizations are merging. On Wednesday, the National Center for Transgender Equality issued a press release announcing its intention to merge with the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund. The merger is expected to be complete by the summer of 2024. The new organization will be called Advocates for Trans Equality, or A4TE. The National Center for Transgender Equality, the NCTE, has a history of fighting for transgender rights at the national level. For example, the center worked for years to improve the TSA's screening process and eliminate the invasive and humiliating searches trans people have been subject to in the past. The NCTE also works hard to help transgender Americans navigate name and gender changes. They maintain a database of federal and state policies regarding those procedures so that they can provide assistance when transgender individuals need help. The NCTE's executive director, Rodrigo Hang-Layton, will become the executive director of the A4TE. The Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund, the TLDEF, helps transgender people in the courts fighting, among other things, bathroom bills and workplace discrimination. The TLDEF's executive director, Andrea Hong-Mara, will become the CEO of the A4TE. So why the merger? Andrea Hong-Mara explained by saying, with double the resources, expertise, and fearless commitment to justice, we will be a powerful national organization to lead the next chapter of the transgender rights movement. Rodrigo Hang-Layton said, now is the time to unite and use our combined power and influence to advance trans equality in bigger and bolder ways than our organizations could alone. According to the NCTE's press release, the new organization will continue to maintain and expand the programs of its two parent organizations. It will operate offices in New York City and Washington, D.C., and will have staff working across the country. So our information for this story came from NBC, The Advocate, and the NCTE itself. So any ideas, any thoughts on this story? I have some. <laughs> so, I think it's a great, I think it's a big win, but go ahead. Yeah, it is. It is. So I, I look at this through the lens of, you know, our dysfunctional government, right? I think it's been a long time since our, since our Congress was the driving body making policy for the nation. Instead, it's, it's all, you know, think tanks and lobbying organizations that, you know, that convince the legislators how they behave. So these days you're not represented 
you know, if you have a, a congressperson, you're represented if national organizations are working in your interest. So I think we should see the existence of these organizations as as a good sign that um, that the chan- the transgender community is is really starting to have some political clout. And and yeah, that's a, that's a great sign. Um, I mean, these two organizations have been around for a long time and working on our behalf. But I think this merger represents a certain, you know, step in growth um, for both of them. So I'm very happy to see this happening. Yeah, it seems like a uh, great thing um, to happen. And I think uh, trans and LGBTQ organizations are a great help to many, you know, people in the in these communities. You know, like we all met each other through one of these, you know, organizations and they provide a great space for people to meet others in the community and also just to get help. Maybe like if you need some emotional or mental health is. Yeah. 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 Well, I think the needs that are fulfilled by by organizations kind of differ by level. True. You know, at the local level, there are lots of local transgender organizations that that provide support. These two groups operate at the national level, so their focus is more on, you know, national policy and um, ways that they can sort of, you know, leverage a national focus to the benefit of the community. But we need both. We need it. We need yeah. it all. Yeah. Absolutely. Each level provides uh, great services to people in the community, you know, like, so. Yeah. So volunteer, everybody volunteer or donate (laughs) to the trans rights organizations. And, and, you know, merge, when I think of merger, you know, I think of unity, right? Like united, Um, just that word in general, I think just speaks to all of us coming, just coming together, right? Like that feels, that feels very powerful. That feels very exciting in the sense that we, we're, uh, we're organizing. Um, we already have been, but this is sort of like, I feel like um, it, it's resulting to something even even larger and it's only going to get bigger and better from here, hopefully. And then hopefully, right, the goal is that these organizations, organizations don't need to exist anymore, right? Uh-huh. So, that's, so um, but who knows if we'll, we'll get there, but that is the goal, right, is to to run these out of the out of business in the sense that now things are are going well in our country we won't we won't need to advocate for ourselves um because our laws will be just but you know yeah yeah well, <laughs> a long shot but <laughs> it's true they mentioned in the, in the article we needed it more than ever now in the past you know a couple yeah. of years so yeah yeah, I, I think if anything, this represents a reorganization that's been prompted by the recent developments, you know, um, in the in the culture, and in the political climate. And those, it's unfortunate that we need to respond to those. It's unfortunate that those trends exist, but um, the fact that there is an organized response, it gives me hope. Yeah. All right. So I think with that, we'll move on to the next story. And our third article comes from the Associated Press and is on a a transgender candidate vying for a uh, seat in a Republican majority 
Ohio House, and they were cleared to run on Thursday after her certification had been called into question for omitting her formal name on a qualifying petition as required by a little used state elections law. The Mercer County Board of Elections chose not to take a, a vote on disqualifying Irene Childre, a d- Democrat from Ogilvy's County, who is one of four transgender individuals campaigning for the legislature, for not disclosing her previous name on petition paperwork. The Ohio law, unfamiliar even to many state election officials, mandates that candidates disclose any name changes in the past five years on their petition paperwork with exemptions for changes caused by marriage. But this law isn't listed in the 33-page candidate requirement guide, and there is no space on the petition paperwork to list any former names. All four transgender candidates for the legislature this year have run into issues with the name change law, which has been in place in some form for decades, but is rarely used, typically in the context of candidates wishing to use a nickname. Childre, who legally changed her name in 2020, has said she would have provided her dead name, the name a transgender person was assigned at birth, but does not align with their gender identity, if she had known about the law. And she said, I would have filled out whatever was necessary, because at the end of the day, while it would have been a hit to my pride, there is something much more important than my pride, and that's fighting for the community. I love I love that she said that. Um, this was... I- this was something that we, we kind of read last week. We didn't get to actually share it in our podcast last week, but um, it's interesting and kind of cool to see that they, um, you know, that they, that it, this, it went into a positive direction. Um, but I mean, I, I, <laughs> Bridget and I, we, we talked about this, about how um, it sort of feels purposeful, right? Um, it's like a way to block her, right? Kind of discriminate against her for something that um, is very specific. And it's interesting too, because there's exemptions for marriage, right? And I, I think exemptions should be made for trans people too, but it just, the it shouldn't, this shouldn't be a news article, basically. Like this is, mm-hmm. yeah, you, you explained it really great, Bridget. Uh, yeah, the way I see it is that, you know, like prejudice can be institutionalized in lots of ways. And one of those ways is is through bureaucracy. And you can have a set of seemingly neutral, you know, laws or policies or procedures that, well, they seem neutral, but, oh, just by chance, they seem to disproportionately disadvantage the minorities. And I think it's well known that that is a tool in the toolkit of the bigots. And um, and I think that's exactly what we're seeing here. Uh, this is a law that probably no one would have ever thought to enforce, but some anti-trans, you know, ever person said, oh, we can use this to, to further our discriminatory goals. And so that's why it ended up being enforced. And, um, and it's very hard to fight against because, you know, it's, Nobody wants to. Nobody wants to raise a flag and fight and die on the hill of tearing down this minor bureaucratic, you know, thing. You know, so. Um, but and so so yes, it ends up starting to feel deliberate because there's there's um, you know a political incentive for those on one side of an issue to keep the 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 inefficient bureaucratic um, rules in place. 
because of their utility in, in enforcing this type of, of prejudice against people. So, yeah, it, yeah, I think, I think um, they're probably, for every example of this that gets brought to the attention of the news, there are probably a dozen examples that don't because people say, oh, yeah, I guess, I guess I, I deserve to be disqualified because I didn't fill out the form correctly or whatever, you know. But in truth, it establishes a trend that works against justice. Yeah. Exactly. And we should call it what it is. It's institutionalized prejudice. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's institutionalized prejudice with plausible deniability, which is the type of prejudice that the bigots like the most. Yeah. And as Kai um, mentioned, uh, we did have the story, a related story to this uh, for our segment last week, but it was uh, cut due to time. But in one of the two articles, they mentioned that it was only being used in these transgender situations. It was being brought up specifically to target transgender people and um, have them str- give them struggles on their paperwork. So, um and uh as the article said the rule was vague and they didn't have a space for it on the form so it was kind of like they were just using it as like a easy way to um you know discriminate and stop them from doing what they were trying to do yeah the law is never the law is never completely like clear there's always room for interpretation. There's always mistakes in this paperwork and that paperwork. And we rely on our administrators to have a sense of justice and to, you know, come down on the right side of issues. You know, there there'll always be that slackness in the in the interpretation of the law that um that gives, you know, the in this case anti trans people opportunities to you know in this case, disqualify someone from the ballot. It's not right that it exists, and um, we should call it out for what it is. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you, Kai. Oh, no, no, no. We we came in at the same time. It's all good. (laughs) Um, It's like, it's kind of like, it it just gives me this feeling of like, where they're like, ha, 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 we got you on a technicality. You know, like, they're just like finding it, be like, hey, 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 you know, be snide about it. But I mean, I think I think the thing about this article that I'm starting to feel um, upset about is, you know, this is about our dead names, right? Like this, this is more than just the things that you're saying, right? The things that you both are bringing up, I think, are so so important. And also, dead names are used to, like, people use, you know, will incite dead names on people who are transgender to to humiliate and dehumanize them right and so if we really kind of go underneath this too there's a there's a level of like bringing up that humiliation or that feeling of of oh my dead name right of like needing to put that on a legal document like that's that can, that's a very sensitive issue for a trans person i i hate <laughs> seeing my dead name on things i know that it happens you know it's whatever but I, I also think it's important to highlight how how it it can be very difficult for some people. 
for Childry, it wasn't. She 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 was like, I'll do it. It's not a big deal. But not every trans person is like that. Some trans person, people, when their kids, you know, trans kids get dead named at school all the time, as, like to be bullied, right? And so that could be yeah. a very triggering thing for someone. Um, yeah. Yeah, true. Um, and I think everyone has their kind of like, it depends on where you are in the pro in the process. I feel like a lot with the, um, you know, being transgender and stuff like that. I feel like there's a kind of like a, a process that a lot of transgender people go through. Right. And that's, it's like at the start, you're kind of like the most vulnerable, the most uncomfortable. And as you become more comfortable with it, you're kind of able to brush aside moments that or struggle easier, you know, like, I don't like seeing my dead name either, but, um, you know, when it, I would probably be in the same situation as, uh, as her, if I was in the same situation, you know, where I would definitely put it down and it's, I feel like it's kind of like a, a path that a lot of transgender people go on, you know, um, mm -hmm. when you're kind of like, more vulnerable to discrimination at the start and then you kind of like come into your own and you can kind of like stave it off more yeah good point so do you want to take us in the next story then kai it's a little bit related to what you were parts of what you were saying are in this next story so yeah let's do it all right all right so our fourth story comes from yahoo news of all places I'm just kidding. No shade, Yahoo. Um, a Republican lawmaker filed a bill that would require schools to inform parents if their child says that they are transgender. Um, it would bar school employees from being disciplined for not using a transgender person or student's pronouns and disallow school districts from requiring personnel or students to use correct pronouns for anyone at the school. So House Bill 304 from um, Representative Shane Baker, R. Somerset, would amend state statute put in place last year with the passage of the divisive Senate Bill 150. LGBTQ rights advocates in Kentucky and across the nation called the bill one of the most anti-trans piece of legislation in the nation, while social conservatives cheered it for being quote-unquote pro-parental rights. Senate Bill 150 banned gender-affirming health care for trans minors, restricted uh, classroom teaching on gender and sexuality, stops districts and schools from asking teachers to use a trans student's pronouns, and mandates districts create policies that prevent trans students from using restrooms or locker rooms that align with their gender identity. House Bill 304 would add school employees cannot be disciplined for not using the correct pronouns of any trans person, including teachers and staff. That same rule barring school employees from referring to adult trans staff by their pronouns would also apply to students. So basically students could use the wrong pronouns and not get in trouble for it. Baker's bill also makes more explicit certain statutory requirements around fundamental parent involvement. Parents must be notified within two business days, for instance, if a student requests or receives health services or mental health services related to sexual conduct or behavior, sexual orientation, or sexual identity. Likewise, school staff must notify parents within two days if their student expresses a quote-unquote gender different from his or her biological sex, end quote. 
This new requirement should exist, the bill reads, as a way to create a safe and supportive learning environment for students and to, quote, facilitate and support parental rights and involvement in the student's life, end quote. Oh, my goodness, fam. I am. <laughs> this one, this one really heated me up. Um, I, I just want to start with this because I need to get it out of my system. Um, this is just like the definition of oppression, right? I mean, like full stop. It is an attempt to control gender. Um, it is an attempt to control trans people. Um, and I don't remember who said this. So whoever it's from, whoever's idea this is, I, I, I defer to that person. But they said something along the lines of our power structures in the United States are designed to oppress based on gender, right? So like, yeah. I just, this, so this is, this is to keep us all in line. If we don't know how to put you into which gender, then we don't know how to oppress you, right? That's exactly what this is. So we're going to make sure that you stay in your lane, you don't be trans um, so that we can continue to uh, just control and oppress you because it makes us uncomfortable because we don't, we can't imagine that gender could be any, any could, could be fluid at all. Um, and I just, uh, and then it's all guised under parental rights and parental quote unquote involvement, making sure that they're more involved with their children. It's just, I hate when they, they decide to either invoke parental rights or save the children, right? It's sort of like they pick which one is most, um, is going to be best to basically, you know, uh, control us or, or put us in our place. It's it's quite it's quite frustrating. Yeah, I'm gonna guess that none of us here and probably very few of our listeners place much stock in claims of parental rights or states' rights or save the children. <laughs> I think we all know that's a trope right now. It's almost it's almost a dog whistle at this point. Um, just um, you know. What it just disguises openly hostile um, ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And don't forget, it's uh, creating a safe and supportive learning environment for students. Um, I love that. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's that's uh, Orwellian, I think. So, so I, you know, um, this is just a bill. Um, but it's in Kentucky. It has a good chance of becoming law. And if it becomes law, I'm kind of curious how schools are going to deal with it because um, the for whatever else it is, you know, misgendering a person is a hostile act, right? And so um, I kind of wonder if, if schools will find a way to um, discipline children for bullying or for disruptive behavior, uh, even if they can't discipline the children for the specific act of misgendering other children, or likewise with teachers. You know, I, I, I think as a, if I were a principal of a school, I would feel quite comfortable saying to a teacher, you know, you're suspended, you know, not, not because you misgendered the student, but per se, but because by misgendering the student, you were expressing hostility towards that student. I kind of expect that um, we still have to see this go through, you know, that that type of, um, you know, parsing in 
in the courts and in the real world, um, I don't think the battle is over quite yet. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think it's it's tough to say because it's like it seems like they want they want to um, you know force this like two gender narrative like Kai was talking about, but I don't think they want to encourage bullying as well. And as Kai was kind of mentioning in our last story, you know, um, like dead naming and misgendering is often uh like is bullying like also as bridget was saying a hostile a hostile act so um it just kind of leads into the wording here i just it goes back to how much i love this uh supportive safe environment when they're kind of creating the opposite and the parents trope is just such a a non-starter because it's in many of these states where these bills are attempting to be passed, I don't think the parents are, will, will help all that much um, in this fight for the uh, for their kids. Uh, as I said in the last podcast, um, I think maybe the family is a slightly better option than the state, but not by much. All right, you ready for another story? Oh, uh, sure, yeah, let's move on. <laughs> okay. Well, actually, this next story is about the murder of some transgender women. So if, um, if our listeners don't want to hear that, you may want to skip ahead. Um, it turns out that 2024 has begun with several noteworthy transgender murders in Mexico. So on January 11th, a transgender activist named Miriam Rios was fatally shot at the store she owned in Zamora, according to the Attorney General's Office for the State of Michoacan. Rios was the municipal commissioner of the political party Movimiento Ciudadano. On January 13th, a transgender person who hasn't been publicly identified was discovered by municipal police in Guadalajara. The Jalisco State Prosecutor's Office reported that the person was found in a ravine with a gunshot wound in their back. And then on January 14th, Samantha Gomez Fonseca was shot several times and killed while in a car, according to Mexico City Attorney General's Office. Samantha Fonseca was a prominent transgender rights advocate. According to the LGBT group Yaj, Samantha Fonseca had a notable track record in defending highly vulnerable groups. Fonseca planned to run for the Senate in June as a candidate for the Morena Party. In addition to these three, the Associated Press reports that right groups have reported two other transgender murders, which have not yet been confirmed by law enforcement. According to the rights groups, it is often difficult to document the hate crimes because officials withhold details. Because of this, these two murders and possibly others may never be officially reported. These murders, they take place at a time when there's a real sense of hostility towards transgender people in Mexico. And that hostility was underscored at the beginning of the month when Mexico's president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, described a transgender congresswoman as, quotes, 
a man dressed as a woman, end quotes. He, he later apologized. Um, but the murder of Samantha Fonseca and others have sparked protests in Mexico City. On Monday, about 100 people marched down the city's main throughway carrying signs and chanting, and protesters also spray-painted Trans Lives Matter on the walls of Mexico's National Palace. So for this story, we collected information from ABC and from the Associated Press. Um, I'm going to start off the discussion by justifying uh, why we have a, a Mexico news story in our U.S. news podcast. Um, I'm going to argue that this is a story very much of interest to our U.S. listeners, not just because of the proximity that Mexico has to the U.S., but because at its root, this is a story about how how people in power have generated an atmosphere of hostility, and that atmosphere gives people license to you know, carry out violence against against transgender people. And that is very much what's happening in the US as well. So in Mexico, it was it was the president saying a, a hateful comment about one of the Congress congressmen in in the nation. But in the US, we have plenty of politicians um, from one of our two political parties uh, making making uh, rude comments about about members of our community. And every time they do that, we see an uptick in the violence. So um, so I think that it's probably appropriate for us to report on murders in Mexico and other parts of the world because of the relevance it has to, you know, the unfolding social dynamics in our country. Yeah, well said. I, I agree. I think we do need to talk about this because I also think... I also think it's important to pay homage to these people and, and and these trans women who were actively working for people like us in and even if it wasn't in our you know our our country, it's for people like us all over the all over the place who are who are probably struggling a lot more than we are in in their respective countries than than we are here. Um, I, I do feel pretty. Um, privileged and grateful that I live here in the United States, but um, so, so I just, I think it's important to say their names and to, to pay homage to them and, and thank them for the ser- their service, just in general. Um, and, and, and yeah, and just, um, like I said, just like here, I, I think it's important to hear their names. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, I'd like to point out that two of these three victims, Miriam Rios and Samantha Fonseca, they were vocal in the community. They were activists. And um, I think more and more, that's who gets targeted. You know, mm-hmm. journalists and activists, the people who who are who are being vocal. And I think that's a deliberate strategy on the part of the, you know, the transphobes is to target the people who are vocal because it, it scares everyone else into silence. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it really yeah. doesn't it doesn't help when you know, you got other politicians like misgendering people and making light of the situation. Even if they're apologizing later, you know, they're still getting a toxic message out there, you know, to the public and kind of um I don't know, making sending some of these 
types of things into motion or, you know, um, it's just, we, I wish it was safer, you know, for transgender people across the, the continent here, you know, so, um, yeah, I mean, they were yeah. very brave being who they are and being in the position that they, they were in being advocates for, for people, for people like us. Um, and I think the other thing too, is people don't tend to care about trans women of color who pass away, right? They're often, people are not held accountable, um, are hardly, you know, hardly prosecuted, uh, well enough to, you know, you know what I mean? Like in, in, in law, in the law and in courts. So it's frust it's frustrating um, because these people deserve justice and they don't get it most of the time. Yeah, yeah, that that is um, sadly a difference between Mexico and the U.S. I think that very few people are held accountable for violence against transgender people in Mexico. I think we have the same problem in the U.S., but but it's not quite as bad. Um, I. I shudder to say that because if it's, if there's any uh, imbalance at all, it's bad. And I'm sure people in the U.S. can cite many examples of where um, crimes against transgender people have not been prosecuted as much as they should be. But but it's definitely true that in Mexico it's a really bad problem. And it's very possible that um, no one will be held accountable for these three murders. Um, and and the many others that happen in Mexico, um, yeah. Well, just last right. week, like, you know, we had the protest for the person that you know killed a transgender woman on house arrest. Right. So. Yeah. Well, and in just yeah. the media in general too, it doesn't get as much coverage, right? Like. They'll, there'll be more coverage on maybe like a young 10 year old white girl who, who's kidnapped versus, you know, a trans, a, a group of, you know, trans women of color who were murdered, right? Like that's just not prioritized in our media and it's not as loud. People aren't as interested in that. They're more interested in kind of the stories of, of the, uh, of the privileged. Um, yeah. All right. Well, with the stories out of the way, let's, uh, I'd just like to say, I thought this week in news was a little bit, wasn't as heavy as last week. I mean, there was some heavy articles like the Mexico story, but, um, it wasn't, there wasn't as many just state legislatures and stuff, um, being pushed against the trans community and stuff like that. So I thought it was, uh, a little bit of a reprieve from last week. Um, I was wondering if either of you have any final comments to share before we wrap up today. Perhaps I it's I think it's a couple months old now, but I finally got around to seeing the uh, the Doctor Who episode, The Star Beast, which uh, features a, a transgender woman in a prominent role. Have either of you seen it? I have not. No. No. Okay. Well, I will recommend it. Um, her name is Yasmin Finney. The, the actress's name is Yasmin Finney. And uh, the plot is is 
very um is very much focused on you know her transgender identity so it's wonderful cool i love that yeah um i'll i'll leave with kind of go on a similar media note there <laughs> um I'm sure most of our listeners if if have probably heard of Disclosure, the, the documentary on Netflix. Um, if you have not, go watch it like right now, like right after this is over, like go go to Netflix. <laughs> go do it. Um, trust me. <laughs> and um Jen Richards, she is a trans uh trans woman, she's a writer and um actress, etc. She talks a little bit about the trope that I was just talking about, um, how in our media there's an uh, trans people are often put in a role of of serial killer, etc. And I, she she explains it super super well. She does such a good job, and she really dives in deep. And um, among other amazing celebrity uh, trans uh, actors and actresses that are in that uh, documentary, I think I think she just she knocks it out of the park with her descriptions of things. So if you want to learn more from someone very well articulated, I would definitely recommend watching that. Cool. Yeah. I haven't seen it, so I'll have to check it out. Thanks for letting That's me it. know. Yeah, sorry. Oh, Laverne Cox is in it. Oh, y'all will love it. <laughs> I do like her. I was, I liked um, a lot, many years ago. I I enjoyed uh, Orange is the New Black. So, mm -hmm. um, but uh, all right. Uh, thank you for tuning in to the Transcatholic Podcast for the week of January twenty second, twenty twenty four. I'm your host Miranda, together with. Richard and Kai and we wish you all a great week thank you